coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. Going into any non-ordinary state of consciousness experience is a highly personal one, highly personal choice, and that there, there may be many great paths to acquiring the familiarity with non-ordinary states that a psychedelic therapist would want to have in order to be able to relate to and understand what a patient is going through. You know, our patient's experiences are always going to be different from ours. So because of their entire relationship to the field and their entire relationship to why they're there, it's always going to be very different from what a therapist might experience in the training uh, situation. At the same time, you know, Fluence is and I am in uh, through that work actively seeking or thinking about ways that the field can offer more, more safe, available legal options for therapists to have these experiences if they want them. Um, but I'm hopeful that we'll start to see more, um, more potential ways that therapists can safely have this experience with a, an actual psychedelic if they choose to and if it's right for them. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts, presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, Eamon Armstrong. Whether psychedelic therapists should have their own experiences with these compounds as part of their training, is a passionately debated subject. Dr. Elizabeth Nielsen, co-founder of Fluence, one of the foremost organizations training psychedelic therapists, has been pondering this for some time, including how we ask the question itself. Her recent paper in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology explores the ethical considerations in offering and providing such experiences, and it is the subject of today's podcast. Our conversation begins with the ethics of discussing personal psychedelic experiences. We then talk about the work of fluence, from harm reduction to integration coaching. We discuss Dr. Nielsen's article, Psychedelics as a Training Experience for Psychedelic Therapists, Drawing on History to Inform Current Practice. We then explore the paradigms of the shamanic and Western worldview. Finally, we review other kinds of altered states of consciousness that psychedelic therapists can explore. Dr. Elizabeth Nielsen is a co-founder of Fluence and a psychologist with a focus on developing psychedelic medicines as empirically supported treatments for PTSD, substance use problems, and mood disorders. Dr. Nielsen is a site co-principal investigator and therapist for an FDA-approved phase three clinical trial of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder and has served as a therapist on FDA-approved clinical trials of psilocybin-assisted treatment for alcohol use disorder, psilocybin-assisted treatment for treatment-resistant depression, and earlier phase two and three trials of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Through Fluence, she provides continuing education and training programs for therapists who wish to engage in integration of psychedelic experiences in clinical settings. And now, here's Dr. Elizabeth Nielsen. Elizabeth, welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. I've been tracking the work of Fluence for a while, and it's exciting for me personally to learn more about the organization and what you're doing in support of psychedelic-assisted therapy, and especially this conversation that we're going to be focusing on today, this question that comes up a lot in many conversations I've had, which is the question of whether it is necessary or appropriate for psychedelic-assisted therapists to have had a psychedelic experience themselves. There's a lot to get into today, and I'm really grateful for your time and for you coming on the program. Yeah, thank you for having me on the program. I'm excited to be here and to be able to have this conversation, and um, thankful for, for your support in taking the time to do this. Well, let's get started with your own personal interest in psychedelic-assisted therapy. I know that you're a researcher and that you're very passionate about healing. And I'm curious how you first discovered or became interested in psychedelic-assisted therapy as a mode of healing. Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. It's something that I think 
the history of, I was aware of growing up. It was just something that I knew about that was part of a story of the the surroundings or the community that I was in. So I was exposed to the idea that psychedelics had been used both in psychotherapy and um, psychiatric treatment and medical research, as well as in indigenous and shamanic healing practices. But outside of that, I had a strong interest in the field of psychology and in finding better and more compassionate ways to work with people who are suffering and in, in using psychology and using mental health care, mental health research to be able to develop better approaches in that field. And so that's really what I pursued for 15 years worth of, of education, schooling, and entry-level jobs and positions and counseling positions and substance use treatment facility positions and, and all kinds of things over, over many years. And it wasn't until 2014, early in 2014, what was going on in the field at that time was a few studies had been restarted after a period of cessation of research between the late 1970s and, and the early 2000s. And there were just a few studies starting to crop up. And one of the studies that was beginning in this sort of second wave of psychedelic research was a series of studies of psilocybin-assisted treatment for alcohol use disorder. And so I had this background of really being interested in mental health research and especially in addiction research and better ways to work with people who are struggling with you know, addictive problems, especially including drug use problems. And I came across a, an email looking for people to join a study as a therapist to, to do this training and to learn how to work with this modality. And it really listed a lot of the things that I had studied and, and become familiar with over the years. So background in addiction treatment, addiction psychology, experience having worked with people in using what are really the mainstream uh, currently available treatments, as well as knowledgeable about and aware of the history of use of psychedelics in research and interested in, in doing that. And in 2014, this wasn't like a popular thing to do. It was, it was considered maybe a risky thing to do with one's time. <laughs> but I was really fortunate in that when I started to speak with colleagues that were working on these projects, I found just that the whole approach was incredibly compassionate and very much aligned with the way that I wanted to be developing ways of interacting with people who are struggling in this way. So it felt really aligned to me. And I hadn't, felt, I hadn't found too much in the field that felt that way, save the harm reduction approaches, which is what I was, would have been using in my clinical practice at that time. So I continued to pursue this. You know, I, I got into working on a study, then I got a postdoctoral fellowship so I could spend more time basically developing a, a career in this field and developing other kinds of, of research in this field. Skip ahead a year, I got training through the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS. I think your listeners are probably familiar with them. Um, and was able to become a research therapist on MDMA trials, and then later on got involved in a larger segment of clinical trials with psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. So grew from there, but that was the original impetus. So you mentioned the um, phase three clinical trial for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder, and you were a site co-principal investigator and a therapist for that clinical Correct. study for that clinical trial. And I understand that because of the scheduling of substances, one is not able to have a psychedelic experience themselves legally when it comes to psilocybin or LSD. Now that's not the case with ketamine, which can be prescribed off-label, and MDMA in the context of these trials. Um, so I'm curious if you were able to have a psychedelic experience or an entheogenic experience as part of your work with MAPS. And whether you had that experience and whether that experience, if you did have it, whether that was helpful or contributed to your interest in this question that's part of our conversation today. So that's a really interesting question. And I think it's a really, I think it really presents a lot of ethical quandaries and good food for thought and fuel for discussion to, to talk about. Being in the position that I'm in, especially as a site co-principal investigator, we are investigating the potential usefulness of MDMA-assisted therapy or the specific indication of post-traumatic stress disorder. We are not in a position and cannot and will not, I will not make any claim that it is safe or effective at this point. Um, that's exactly what these studies are determining right now. 
or generating evidence to help determine. So part of, you know, part of the consideration in answering something like that has to do with being able to be sort of neutral in in the field and maintain a sense of non-biased and non-prejudged or non-predetermined approach to to working with these materials in a research setting. There's also a lot of ethical quandaries around asking somebody a question like that, where even though there may have been an opportunity for them to have that experience as part of their training, and I say may because the time that, that those experiences were possible, they were offered as part of a research study themselves. So people had to actually go and enroll in an experimental research study and sign up for what is an experimental treatment. Even though that may have been you know, sanctioned or legal, there's still a lot of stigma and a lot of, there can be a lot of judgment and a lot of maybe discrimination that could happen against someone who chooses to talk about or to disclose or to engage in an experience like that. So I think that until the field is really able to provide safe, legal, accessible, and um, experiences that can be had in a way that is not leading people to be stigmatized for having them. We want to be really careful about how we address those questions and how we talk about them. Um, the study that you're that you're referring to, as I said, was an experimental uh, study, experimental protocol enrolling healthy volunteers, and there were trainee therapists that had the option to enroll in that. But I think that at this point, just for listeners to know, outside of outside of that, and there is a second reiteration version of that that MAPS has approval very recently, which has just came out about a month ago. There is not such an opportunity for, for psilocybin therapists available in our country at this point. So no, that has not been part of psilocybin therapist training. Has not, it's not something that's been offered as part of psilocybin therapist training. The ethical considerations around psychedelic use and stigma are enormously important, particularly for someone like yourself who's involved in research on many different levels and who's also involved in training psychedelic-assisted therapists through your work with Fluence. I'd love to just for a moment talk a bit about Fluence and about the work that you're doing there to kind of orient our listeners in the landscape of the work that you do. So what is the work that you're actually doing with Fluence in terms of supporting the next generation of psychedelic-assisted therapists? Yeah, so Fluence is an independent education organization, education platform, and uh, it was co-founded by me and Dr. Ingmar Gorman, who is, has also been a site co-principal investigator for MAPS and has a long-standing history of interest and work in MDMA-assisted therapy and has also just recently begun to do some psilocybin-assisted therapy work as well in research settings. And the two of us together had a harm reduction orientation and we were working in clinical trials and we were uh, also seeing patients in our private practices who were struggling with psychedelics or had used psychedelics and either they were struggling with maybe a decision to use psychedelics or they had used them and were struggling with a, an experience afterward, or maybe they had a great experience and they were looking still for some help in integrating that and working with it. And so we, we together began working in private practice with these particular kinds of patients and found that we were blending harm reduction, integrative harm reduction therapy with our knowledge of psychedelic assisted therapy coming from just the research trials and also our general knowledge of the topic, uh, having studied it a lot and working with patients who were seeking help in this way and that there was a big need to, for education in this field, right? Because therapists were calling us as well and saying, you know, I have this, this particular quandary. How do I have a conversation with this person? Or what, when I have a conversation with them, what should I base it on? There's nothing, I can't find anything in the literature about how to work with people who've had psychedelic experiences in my office. So um, there's reason for that, right? This research was, was not, uh, not prioritized, let's say, for quite some time. And like people who choose to use psychedelics as a population were, I don't think, really given the the full breadth of interest and understanding that the topic could have had for a long time. 
But, uh, you know, we took a more nuanced view and said, well, there's a lot of different ways you could approach this, a lot of different things you could say and do that could be helpful. And we started running workshops and we started teaching about it. And that grew into Fluence in 2019. We started offering programs in 2020. And we're now a training institute that has something like 15 different classes a year and two certificate programs and just multiple opportunities to get involved, anything from a webinar to a full uh, full certificate program, which is really just a postgraduate program of study. So we're educating people in this harm reduction and integration therapy modality that we've developed and published on. Published on. Uh, we're also doing a research study about that uh, modality and how people use it in actual therapy situations. And we're developing and working to provide a program in ketamine-assisted therapy, which teaches a lot of the foundational principles of psychedelic-assisted therapy, but in the context of working with ketamine. We've taken a really kind of cautious note around training people for things that there's no, no real potential legal avenue for them to use in practice. So we're not at this time directly offering like full training in, for instance, psilocybin therapy, because there wouldn't be a clear pathway for people to use that, at least where we are based in the United States. That landscape is changing. Obviously, you know, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with what's been happening in Oregon and, you know, maybe familiar with how close clinical trials are getting to potential approval for specific indications. It's not yet known if those approvals come through what the training requirements will be, but we're keeping a close eye on that. And we do hope to be providing training in those therapies when we can do so in a way that is leading to people being able to meet whatever requirements there are. And so you're currently focusing on a kind of harm reduction and integration approach to uh, working with a client population that may have used these medicines or may have had other experiences. And so with the harm reduction approach, what sort of research is available around the modality of trip sitting a la the Zendo Project or, or other harm reduction organizations? Is there research that you draw on for that? Or is there research that you've been able to do to support the harm reduction approach around psychedelic experiences? So th- this is really interesting. And I think part of, why we, part of why we developed what we developed is that the harm reduction approaches that are taken in peer settings So for instance, what Zendo's approach, or if you call like a peer support hotline they have now, those are fantastic. And they're also not really designed to be what a psychotherapist would do in a psychotherapy setting. So there's a distinction there. When we're teaching psychedelic integration work, because we are psychotherapists and we're coming from the psychotherapy background, we're considering and incorporating the environment of the psychotherapy relationship, the healthcare setting, the therapist's roles and responsibilities as a therapist, the patient-therapist relationship, and all of those things, which I think make uh, can make a unique and wonderful context for doing this kind of work, preparation and integration especially. And when people are doing this work as in a peer setting or, you know, a festival-based harm reduction setting, that's not a therapist-patient relationship or it's not a healthcare setting, that can also be a wonderful place to do this work, but it's different. And there are some different considerations around it. So our perspective and what we teach is primarily for the clinical therapeutic setting and what therapists can do um, and how they can take the harm reduction approach and use the principles of that really in a way of working with people who are either considering using or have used uh, used psychedelics. There's some overlap. You know, we, we talk about some of the same resources. We talk about how therapists can educate patients about things like pill testing, right? So those are, there's some overlap there in terms of what some of the topic areas might be, but the frame is different and the relationship is different. And To be able to educate therapists about this, I think is really important because we've met and heard from therapists who say, you know, they haven't had any education about how to incorporate this into their clinical therapeutic practice, and they may be afraid to, or they may be feeling inadequate about doing so, feeling they don't have the skills for it, they don't have the tools for it, they weren't educated about it. Education about any kind of conversation about any kind of drug can be something that 
that therapists either aren't educated about or basically been taught to avoid or have learned to believe that they can't handle or they can't address in psychotherapy. So we're opening up the paradigm as far as what therapists can include in their conversation saying, you know, hey, people have these experiences. It's okay to talk about them. Here's how you can do so safely in a way that's aligned with harm reduction approaches, which are very well, very well established and respected as an overall approach to working with people in the field. And you speak about working with people who are in a clinical setting, therapists, people who may not yet have the tools with which to work with these populations who are needing the support. How do people like this find fluence? If they don't know what they don't know, how do they know what they don't know? Like, How are your clients coming to these programs? What sort of outreach is happening to make more awareness in the field of therapy generally that these harm reduction approaches are available and valuable and can be taught through an organization like Fluence? Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of the people that come to our programs hear about it from other colleagues. They may read about it. They may read about the research or read about, you know, just people's experiences and say, hey, I want to learn more about this. And how can I answer my patient's questions about it? And um, sometimes they Google us or they look us up on uh, search engines or Facebook or do uh, search through other organizations that they may uh, already follow. We don't have a, we don't have a, like a massive marketing advertising <laughs> arm of our of our operation right now. Although we we do intend to expand the the outreach to uh, licensed licensed clinicians in this area. But I think for the most part, therapists know and understand that when when there's a new topic area that might be coming up in the field or a new a new you know modality or a major new question or new diagnostic area they will go out and look for resources to, to try to educate themselves to get continuing education about it is one thing. And that's just part of keeping up with the standards of the field and, and keeping up, keeping one's you know, skills updated and relevant. Most therapists, depending a little on their licensure and jurisdiction, but most uh, do need to have continuing education credits. And Fluence provides a lot of continuing education credits for a lot of different professions. So that's a way that that's a mechanism by which people can, you know, use their time that they spend studying with us to submit to their licensure board and demonstrate that they are keeping their skills up to date and relevant with what's the latest research. And I liken it to 20 years ago when I was going through school, it was, there was a lot of research and a lot of awareness coming out about trauma-informed care and trauma-informed therapy. And it was, there was a big push to make sure that all curriculums included trauma-informed points and modalities, and that research was incorporated into things. And therapists were seeking CE credits, continuing education credits on specific courses to help them get up to speed on the latest research about that. So this is just sort of part of the way our field works. So there's a a blossoming industry, I don't know if industry is the word, but there's a blossoming sort of network of integration coaches in the psychedelic space. So often if someone has their own psychedelic experience, whether that's at a festival recreationally and reveals some sort of trauma or something that they want to work on, or maybe they've pursued their own healing through an ayahuasca ceremony or some sort of personal experience, many people are now going to integration coaches that are not therapists and they're not necessarily trained in traditional therapy or have traditional clinical practice, but they're doing work in supporting in integration. Um, Are you familiar with some of the integration coaching modalities like the Being True to You Network, some of these different organizations? And, And if you are familiar with some of their work, how does that compare in your eyes to working with a therapist per se to work on these psychedelic experiences and then integrating them? Yeah, so coaching has, I think, a really great role in an array of services that people can use in life. You know, my familiarity with coaching comes from being uh, knowing and having colleagues who are credentialed as coaches who've gone through credentialing programs. And that is their profession and that is their standpoint. And by and large, I think it can be a very 
supportive and affirming and positive way of working with someone. The important distinction is that it's it shouldn't be considered mental health care. It shouldn't be considered treatment for somebody who is struggling with some sort of symptoms that you know lead to clinical clinically significant distress would be our <laughs> official term for it, right? And how does one draw the line there? There, there could be gray areas and there could be overlapping cases, sure. But for a lot of people who don't really meet the level of need where a licensed clinical therapist who is trained to work with people who are at a level of distress or a level of impairment that they that is clinically significant, um, a coaching approach might be really quite adequate and quite fitting. As far as fluence programs, we have one of our introductory courses is credentialed to give continuing education credits for coaches. And this is something that I hope to expand more into the future. We're kind of going to see how it goes phase with that and see how many, how many people actually take advantage of that. I certainly hope that it will be it will be popular, even though our background as leaders and our main focus is on clinicians and thinking about the clinic more clinical applications of this. I think in our introductory courses and especially with our harm reduction focus, there's quite a lot that, that could be overlapping and could be valuable for people who aren't necessarily working in the therapeutic modality but are coming from a coaching perspective. So let's get into this question about whether a psychedelic experience would be valuable for someone who was going to be supporting someone in psychedelic-assisted therapy. Now, this is clearly a question that's of major importance to you because you've just published an article on the subject. And what I love here is that you're drawing on what is available in terms of research. And this is the uh, Spring Grove LSD training study that took place from 1969 to 1974. So your article here is titled Psychedelics as a Training Experience for Psychedelic Therapists, Drawing on History to Inform Current Practice, just recently published in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology. So I'd love to look at that article as a way of exploring this question, because I feel like that's exactly what you were doing. So, so, so let's have that conversation. Can you just, for the sake of locating the audience, just kind of set up what research you were doing in drawing on that history from Spring Grove? So the history is uh, coming from this historical project at Maryland State Psychiatric Institute. And it's the study was set up such that people could take LSD as a training experience. And this was really one of the last times prior to this cessation of research for 40 years, uh, clinical research with uh, human administration of psychedelics. And it's, it's important and significant in that it actually um, was set up to give people this opportunity to take LSD as a training experience. And we haven't seen anything similar since then with a classic psychedelic, at least speaking for the U.S. and in our jurisdiction, right? So when we think about creating a training program these days, and we don't have evidence or we don't have clinical trials to point to, to say, this is the precedent, this is what's been going on, this is what we should be doing, this is a one helpful place to look. It's not the only place to look, but it's it's a helpful place to look. And I think it was helpful to point out that this was. This is not an ongoing, uh, an ongoing practice. I meet a lot of therapists or a lot of people who want to be therapists or are just interested in the field, who think that uh, this is an ongoing practice and this is something that all therapists do, all all psychedelic therapists do on a regular basis. And so, part of writing this was to, you know, make the point that that's not really the case. Well, and there's there's the shamanic model of psychedelic healing, which initially, from what I understand, and this is probably anecdotal, but that in a traditional shamanic setting, that the shaman themselves would be taking the medicine, the psychedelic, and actually would be healing individuals who are not themselves taking it. So it's quite the inverse of what we're looking at now. And in the article you compared, on one side there's this shamanic model versus if you're looking at a traditional clinical mental health practice, the practitioner would absolutely not be taking any of the medication that they're giving to the patient because 
it's the patient who has the symptoms that then need that medication. So I think that when we look at the gray market of psychedelics, it's somewhere in between, but it kind of leans more towards this shamanic heritage. And I'm curious, can you imagine maybe some kind of research that could be done in tapping into the shamanic lineages around answering this question? Well, <laughs> I mean, I think you're talking about a, a two different paradigms, right? For a shamanic training experience to work in that worldview and in that paradigm and, and in that modality, that is up to that, that culture and, and that tradition to determine. And when we're talking about the modern, modern healthcare paradigm and the modern pharmacological approach and the way that we work with mental health in our system, we need to come up with a solution that is based in and grounded in the worldview of that system. This is such an interesting point in terms of psychedelic therapy, because I feel like there are a lot of people, particularly from the sort of gray market underground therapy world, who would actually like to see the shamanic worldview integrated into a more modern medical climate. And, and some argue that actually part of the sickness that we're experiencing culturally may be in part due to some of the limitations of the Western medical model in terms of this kind of uh, diagnose and prescribe method that has happened with SSRIs for mental health, for example. Some people lay some of the, the limitations of that on the feet of the worldview itself. And so a lot of the conversations that I've had around this topic, I hear a lot of desire or passion for this shamanic worldview actually to be integrated more deeply into a medical context. I imagine that there's a lot of issues around how one does that. I hear that. And I, yeah, I hear that. I think I'm going to take a middle road approach here because I think that from where I'm sitting and what I'm seeing on a regular basis in this in the most modern (laughs) medicalized institutions and systems that I could be witnessing, this is creating a paradigm shift. This is creating a paradigm shift. And it's already quite a huge one. And to be able to go into, uh, into research studies or to advise on the design of research studies, you know, Fluence does consulting as well for research study design and how to incorporate psychedelic-assisted therapy and the psychotherapy component into trials of psychedelics that are coming to the, the research scene now. It's very different from the traditional or sort of the standard medical approach in mental health care, like you said, like SSRIs and the sort of prescribe, treat, assess, out-the-door, out-the-door approach. And I, I don't mean to suggest that it is a, it's not an integration of a shamanic model into the modern Western approach by, by and large, although I think there are probably some tidbits that um, may inform what's happening. But it's also not the same old routine practice. And I'll go back to where I started, which was when I came to this work, it was with the intention of finding better and more compassionate treatments for and approaches to working with, I don't even like the word treatment, people who are suffering. And in order to do that, my main struggle was, I think we really have to change the entire conceptualization and the entire way that we're approaching people the understanding of the locus of the problem, the understanding of the the role of the relationship with the provider and the power dynamics therein, Uh, the understanding of the patient's own intuition, autonomy, and the valuing of their experience of themselves, the way that they see themselves, the way that they the way that they are, their internal experience is valued or incorporated or even just listened to in therapy. And so this is a place where those things are happening and those things were not, not really the focus beforehand. So I do think this is, this is creating a paradigm shift and it, it might not be always so, so obvious, but like going back to what Fluence is doing, the fact that we're educating therapists about how can you have a non-judgmental, accepting conversation with somebody, a uh, respectful conversation with somebody about their potential choice to uh, engage in psychedelic use as a way of promoting their own healing. That's a paradigm shift that for a lot of therapists who did not have the possibility of having that conversation, maybe even just a few years ago. 
Yeah, it's interesting because things are moving so fast and there's a certain cohort of, of psychedelic enthusiasts and longstanding psychonauts who are eager for things to move even faster. You know, a lot of folks coming out of, say, like the Burning Man world, coming out of a lot of personal psychedelic use who've seen a lot of healing in their own lives and in their communities are wanting to see this paradigm shift really rapidly. Now, of course, we know that that's totally not possible to shift something that quickly, even as we're going through a renaissance in our exploration of psychedelics, which is, of course, why these research studies are so important and why there's so much research that has to be done for the sake of safety, for the sake of an ethical approach to these. So as I was reading your paper about the Spring Grove training study, what I loved about it was the caution that you had just throughout the paper around the ethical considerations and even around the value of the research itself that was done in the early 70s. So it's an interesting balance of the desire to move forward with this healing. You know, we're in a massive mental health crisis globally, so there's a desperation to find solutions. But at the same time, we can't just look at these anecdotal experiences of healing as real as they feel for us in our personal lives if we've had those experiences, that we do need good research and good research takes time and it has to be verified um, by other institutions and replicated. So I really uh, applaud what you're doing and I imagine that it must be challenging in certain ways with so much enthusiasm coming out of the kind of vanguard of psychedelic enthusiasts. Yeah, well said. I mean, the, the need for, the need for caution is really great. And I think the enthusiasm is really, it's, for the most part, <laughs> very, very well received. And I appreciate all the potential energy that's there. And I see really great efforts and really great initiatives. Just so much stuff is springing up in this field. It's wonderful to see people getting involved. Um, you know, this has got to be something that we're very careful with, right? We're talking about extremely powerful materials, substances, psychedelics, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call the make the catch-all term for the day. And we're talking about people, when we're talking about like research in therapeutic settings, we're talking about using them with people who are really highly vulnerable and people who are in a lot of distress, potentially experiencing a lot of disability, potentially really desperate and really in, really in need. And I get that very, very fully. And I think that out of care and respect, it's extra important that we act cautiously and ethically and don't let our, our own enthusiasm or our own, what we've witnessed, maybe what we've experienced, get in the way of our expectations and really testing things and taking them, taking them cautiously with, these, with the populations that we're working with. As harm reduction therapists and running an institute that trains the harm reduction therapists, we get stories from people that have really been, you know, misled or hurt or tried to treat, tried to, to seek treatment outside of clinical trials or in ways that were not legally sanctioned or with therapists that were not acting in accordance either with their license if they were licensed or in, in ways that were not, you know, not in within their scope of practice, let's say. And people really getting quite hurt and maybe in a lot more, uh, a lot more distress than they even started with. So I think we need to be really careful. You know, there's, there's a, a concept that I've written about previously called iatrogenic addiction or iatrogenic problems with treatments. And for those who might not be familiar with that word, it means unexpected side effects. So like an iatrogenic addiction would be if somebody goes in for a surgery and is treated with an opiate and an effect of that treatment is that they wind up with an opioid dependence uh, or addiction because of that, right? So iatrogenic effects of, of treatments. And there are, those are not un, unheard of in, <laughs> in existing mental health treatments and especially in those that involve pharmacological interventions. And we don't really know what the scope and possibility of those with psychedelic assisted therapies is right now. So I think that's something that we're going to have to do a lot more research on and a lot more, have a lot better understanding of until we can, until we can be better prepared for, for whatever outcomes are going to happen. This reminds me of some research and experience that comes out of the mindfulness meditation research world. I don't know if you're familiar with that or if your listeners are, but I've been you know, training in and studying and working with mindfulness-based modalities for a 
pretty long time now. And there was obviously a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of great promises and a lot of really positive press and maybe a lot of claims that mindfulness and meditation is sort of the panacea, the magic bullet is going to cure everything. And meditation can have some really adverse effects. It can leave people feeling disoriented, disillusioned, disconnected from reality. It can be overwhelming. It can be too intense. It can bring up, bring up traumatizing uh, memories for people or memories that are traumatic for people in ways that they may not have the, the support to, to manage at that time. So the research that wanted to look at to the researchers that wanted to look at what are these phenomena and how are they how are they happening we're just beginning to see that work starting to be available and more understood and more well incorporated into people's education about mindfulness-based modalities now and this has obviously been part of part of mental health care and, and even regular health care for quite some time now so I see a bit of a bit of parallels there and um, yeah you know I want to I want to keep people safe and help you know, help them heal, but not in a way that's blind to the possibilities that there there may be potential outcomes that we're not aware of yet or don't have uh, the tools to to work with yet. Yeah, that's super important. I think a lot about um, ketamine-assisted therapy and through the sort of like dance party community, there are absolutely those folks who end up addicted to ketamine and end up having significant adverse effects, including physically, including kidney and bladder issues and people who can get very lost in that world. And so with all this enthusiasm about ketamine-assisted therapy right now, there's a concern that, you know, looking at the opioid crisis, if we have a potential treatment for depression that only lasts a certain amount of time and then people are getting prescriptions and they're they're using these substances on their own i see that as a, a potential mirroring of what went on with the opioid crisis of people getting dependent on on ketamine and dependent on a dissociative state to deal with trauma to deal with these things where they're not actually getting the treatment that they need surrounding it so it's really important that you're sounding the alarm for that and i hadn't heard that word before so i i hope it gets more deeply in the lexicon as we continue to move forward in the psychedelic renaissance yes iatrogenic it's a iatrogenic it's, really it's a great word iatrogenic yeah but that would be a case of what you what you just described would be an example of iatrogenic addiction that was you know developed out of a, a treatment for depression with a drug that that does have um, potential to uh, lead to uh, dependence. So returning to this Spring Grove LSD training study, you go to great lengths in the paper to identify all the ways in which this research can potentially be useful, but also its limitations around the way that studies were conducted at that time. It uses a survey as a way of demonstrating the efficacy of this kind of training. As I was looking at the research, there's that table of how people scored the value of that experience. And the highest scoring was that was actually the educational value of the experience. That's what scored most highly in the surveys. So it does seem that the research is indicating value in terms of having a psychedelic experience if you were to then be a psychedelic therapist in spite of perhaps some of the limitations of the study. I'm curious, after the research that you've done of this study and in publishing this paper, do you feel that this research is indicative that these psychedelic experiences are valuable for therapists? Yeah, so part of what, we're, part of what the finding of this paper was is to say, the role of this paper was is to say, these are some of the experiences that people had. So once you, you know that and you document that, then you, you can't go back and say, well, nobody nobody had that happen. And, and we've seen this also in present day reports and some of the published accounts of, for instance, the MAPS Healthy Volunteers study that therapists say, I had this experience and it was, it was helpful, it was educational. And so that needs to be part of, I think, part of the conversation that therapists find this, find this educational. What it isn't is a comparison of this versus other educational experiences. We don't know whether or not that would be different if people had pre-existing experience with this or went on to have additional experience with it. We don't know how it might compare to other kinds of non-ordinary states of consciousness experiences that people may have had. Um, what we can say is in this context, in this particular way, people in the study did, did find it to be educational. 
So I'd love to talk about other alternative states of consciousness. So on the Fluence website in the FAQ, there's the question about whether as part of the training, someone would receive psychedelics. And the response is, this is part of the response, while we recognize that such experiences can be a valuable part of training for some professionals in certain situations, we believe they are neither necessary nor sufficient and value a more general familiarity with alternative states of consciousness. Also in the paper, you write, it will be essential to compare the act drug session training method with other non-drug methods for inducing non-ordinary states of consciousness, such as holotropic breathwork sessions, which are currently in use in psychedelic-assisted therapy training programs. So it sounds like an experience with alternative states of consciousness themselves are valuable for a psychedelic therapist. So at Fluence, are you offering other forms of alternative states of consciousness as part of the training? And what have you experienced in terms of the value of those in the work that Fluence is doing? Yes. Fluence as a program, uh, first of all, we're not a clinical service provider, right? We're just, we're an education company. So we don't have a clinic with doctors and prescribers and and all of that stuff that we're part of that we could bring those medical services in and provide in-house treat people as as patients as well. A couple of things about what we do offer. So we offer, um, throughout our programs, we actually weave in a lot of experiential practice. And by that, I mean, we continuously and throughout the programs offer a lot of reminders and indications for people to tap into what they're experiencing at the time, to learn from their own experience of things, of what they're going through and how the how the training is landing with them, how it's affecting them, what their responses are in real time to role play situations or even to information that we're presenting. And so that's asking people not to just learn things on a cognitive level, but to learn from their own experience of the process. And when I hear the the term experiential training, that's, that's what I'm going, that's what I'm thinking about. That's what I'm indicating. To a lot of people, it seems to have come to mean taking psychedelics as part of training. But I want to clarify that there are a lot of ways to have experiential trainings. And and that term has been around for a long time in the training world um, that don't necessarily mean or are not linked to the experience of taking a psychedelic oneself. So I think there's a bit of just general overlapping terminology confusion there. We do something called our experiential practice retreat. And at the experiential practice retreat, it's a five-day program. People come to retreat center, um, which is upstate New York. It's a beautiful place in nature, a lot of really gorgeous surroundings, nice artwork, good food. Um, So it really sets the setting for being able to introspect and turn, tune into one's uh, internal experience. Um, And we lead a five-day program where people can practice going through the preparation for uh, non-ordinary state of consciousness themselves and practice assisting a peer in preparing for a non-ordinary state of consciousness and then going through a day of silent meditation as a group. And this is led by me and several other teachers who are trained meditation teachers, as well as their fluence trainers who have experience in teaching mindfulness-based modalities, meditation, yoga. And then so we do a day of silence, which if somebody hasn't done that, especially, or even if they have, it's quite a, it can be quite an experience to be in silence from dawn when you wake up all the way through your, just before your evening meal. So quite, um, quite a bit of time to steep in it. Um, but we, we really prepare people for that. And then we go through an integration process in the next uh, two days of the retreat where people will practice integrating their own experience and assisting a peer in integrating that experience. So from, from both of these perspectives, therapists can go through the process, learning from their own experience and learning from the experience of assisting someone else through it. And in this container, we only do this in person. We do not do this online. In this container, we're able to offer a level of set and setting and surrounding and safety and really try to cultivate something that gives people a place that they can reference when they're working with their own patients who might be preparing for or going or coming back from any kind of psychedelic or other non-ordinary state of consciousness experience. 
Yeah, so it, I think that a lot of people might imagine that you are either having a psychedelic experience and then that's the experiential training part, or that it's all sort of theoretic. And so it sounds like you've managed to construct something that that is able to give them an embodied experience of supporting someone's integration without necessarily having to have a psychedelic experience that has not yet been clinically proven to be appropriate for the training of the therapist themselves. That's a really nice way of putting it. Yes. In fact, that program is not credentialed for continuing education because we're not teaching the information. We're not trying to give people the download and make notes and do slides and have learning objectives. It's very much about asking people to learn from their own experience of things. So people may go home with a journal of notes about what they experienced during the week and some photographs and maybe some pieces of a collective art project and memories, but it's not it's not about getting the the, the info and the, the data points. We do have those courses too, <laughs> but that's not that's not this one. Yeah, and I think another kind of point in the in the paper that I wanted to really make with this is to say we don't know the the safety of of doing a, a psychedelic assisted therapy, you know, in a research setting, especially for people who our therapists, you know, I think everybody has to make a decision about what the individualized risk and potential benefit analysis. And right now with these, with these treatments being experimental and only being, if they are offered as in the MAPS program, offered as experiments, as part of experimental research studies, really want therapists to think carefully about what, whether or not the potential for benefit and the risk are something that are feel personally appropriate for them to take on, right? The health risks, taking the time, et cetera, et cetera. So right now, I think our best approach is to have alternatives and to honor everyone's choices and to understand that, you know, going into any non-ordinary state of consciousness experience is a highly personal one, highly personal choice. And that there, there may be many great paths to acquiring the familiarity with non-ordinary states that a psychedelic therapist would want to have in order to be able to relate to and understand what a patient is going through. We're never going to be the same. Our patient's experiences are always going to be different from ours. So because of their entire relationship to the field and their entire relationship to why they're there, it's always going to be very different from what a therapist might experience in the training uh, situation. At the same time, you know, Fluence is and I am in uh, through that work actively seeking or thinking about ways that the field can offer more, more safe, available legal options for therapists to have these experiences if they want them and if they're appropriate for those therapists from a health and well-being standpoint. You know, I think that in the next year or two, and I, and I, I can't like go into details about this because there just aren't any yet, but I'm hopeful that we'll start to see more, um, more potential ways that therapists can safely have this experience with a, an actual psychedelic if they choose to and if it's right for them. Yeah, I think that having that option is going to be really valuable over time. Yeah. It's interesting, kind of on the flip side of this, I know a lot of people who have expressed a desire to become psychedelic-assisted therapists. And pretty much every single one of them had a psychedelic experience that then made them want to hold space in that way for someone else. So I think there's a lot of people who are coming to the field who actually have their psychedelic experiences in the past. I'm curious what the ethical approach would be to utilizing a therapist's past experience, perhaps in a non-therapeutic container, to then inform their training for uh, psychedelic healing themselves. Is it ethical to then, as part of a curriculum, to engage with someone who has had a previous, perhaps below ground experience that they have information from, they have an experience that could then be utilized in service of others. Is it ethical to, to work with that in a certain way? Or is it just, there's a bit of a, like a don't ask, don't tell approach to that when people are in more formal trainings? That's a great, it's uh, another really great point. So what I'll say is that, you know, in all of, in the fluence trainings, in all of the fluence trainings and just Solely speaking about that program, because that's really the program that, you know, the have the leadership in and can speak to. We recognize that a lot of therapists coming to 
are to, to these programs may have had some experience with some psychedelics. Um, and there's a re- I think there's a really wide variety, full gamut variety in terms of the people that we see. So we want to make it a safe space for everyone. And, you know, we let people know that they're welcome to speak about their own experience. They're welcome to not speak about their own experience. They can keep it to themselves if they want. They can identify it if they want. And they won't be judged either way. And I think that's really important because we don't want to in any way alienate or make people feel unwelcome who may not have had that experience. Likewise, we don't want to alienate or discourage people who are coming because they were inspired by that experience from being present at our program. So as a, you know, sort of baseline, we just try to establish that level of safety and mutual respect for everyone and learning from everyone's, everyone's experiences. And I think from there, it can open up quite a bit. We don't, there doesn't tend to be a whole lot of discussion and sharing about personal experiences in our classes simply because we're focused on the the therapist training experience and how people are working with their patients. You know, there might be some sort of background reference to it, but it doesn't tend to be a whole lot of actual airtime, but it is, it can be an important factor. And when we do our certificate programs, so people that are really committing to a longer course of study with us, they have individual mentoring. And one of the things that people can do in their individual mentoring is talk a little bit more privately and a little bit more, maybe just a little bit more candidly (laughs) about what brings them to this work and what maybe their personal relationship with it was and what might've inspired them and try to understand that connection a little bit more. And sometimes it's curiosity about psychedelics, but without having tried them. And sometimes it's having witnessed people using psychedelics and being healed from them who were very close to that person. So it wasn't their own experience, but they saw this amazing healing in someone they loved. Um, and sometimes it was personal experience, but we, we do um, want to provide that, that space for people. And I think just as a program, really respect the wide variety of backgrounds and trajectories and comfort levels that there are. Another point I'll make about that is that you know, stigma is a a variable thing and different people may be vulnerable to different levels of it or different levels of risk because of it. So there's, when we talk to therapists about in our training programs at Fluence, for instance, about deciding whether or not to disclose psychedelic use or just deciding whether or not to discuss it with patients or even to talk about their interest in this topic with colleagues, we really want to encourage people to make their own decision that is suited to and appropriate for the level of risk and the level of stigma that they may be exposed to. And so we, we want that to be some like an individual decision that people can, that people feel is right to them and that's comfortable for them. And just let people know that there isn't a, there isn't a one size fits all answer there. And we want first and foremost for everyone to, to be safe and to consider things, consider carefully if there might be risks that that they're taking, that they are that they're being safe themselves. Well, this has been such a comprehensive approach to this question. It's been on my mind a lot in different conversations, and I'm so grateful to have had just a full deep dive on it. And we're coming close to the end of our time together. And I'm curious if there's anything that we might have missed in terms of this particularly potent question for the psychedelic community and for those in psychedelic healing, just in case there's something that that feels outstanding from your research and your interest in this particular question. I just wanted to to give a little open-ended check-in for the end of our conversation. Yeah, that's great. Um, Somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago if I thought it would be possible to do a study that compared clinical outcomes of patients of therapists who had an experience of psychedelics as part of their training with clinical outcomes of patients who of patients of therapists who did not have a psychedelic experience as part of their training. And, you know, we kind of tossed it around for a little bit in conversation and it wasn't the first time I've had that conversation, but I think the variables are so immense and so many, and I see so many wonderful therapists coming to this field with 15, 20, 30 years of experience working with people who are, you know, have severe PTSD or people who have 
levels of disorientation or breaks from reality and all kinds of therapists with a ton of skills. And I think that as training programs, we really need to focus on how can we help people translate those skills and build the knowledge that they need to be competent and comfortable and to be able to act ethically and provide this, this kind of treatment in a way that's going to be as safe and as effective as it can be if, if it's determined that it's going to meet the standards and, and be approved. And that's as yet still, at least for, for MDMA and psilocybin, it's very much an unknown. And, and that's really what our focus is on. And so while this is a very important, very interesting question, I also think that I don't want it to sort of eclipse the amazingly rich training and experience and professionalism that so many therapists bring to this field regardless. Mm, I love that. I love that. And that's a wonderful way to, to, way to land our conversation today. I do always end this podcast the very same way. And I think that you are uniquely equipped to offer an answer to this question. It's quite an open question, which is this. I'd like to give you a moment to speak directly to psychedelic therapists, those who aspire to be psychedelic therapists, people who are really interested in this field. So an open floor for anything that you'd love to communicate directly to the people who are passionate about this kind of healing from your experience, uh, your long experience in relation to it and in relation to training folks to be able to provide space for this kind of healing. So what would you like to say to uh, aspiring psychedelic therapists or those who are practicing today? To aspiring psychedelic therapists, I would like to say that I'm so heartened and glad that you can say that you are an aspiring psychedelic therapist. When I was in college and, and actually all of graduate school and doctoral studies, that really wasn't something that we could say until several years ago. It was, it was still considered pretty uh, risky and or just not really something that we could be say and be taken seriously. So if that is your heart's desire and that is something that you want to pursue, then I fully welcome that and encourage you and um, hope that you will pursue it and continue to build not only the positive directions that this field has has gone in, but also to help us to make it uh, professionalized and welcoming and inclusive and equitable for those who need it. So what a great thing to be able to say and fantastic. We hope that, that it's successful. Wonderful. So this paper, Psychedelics as a Training Experience for Psychedelic Therapists, Drawing on History to Inform Current Practice, that's currently available and can be read online. Is that the case? It's not open access, but if anybody would like to access it, they can email the corresponding author, which is me. My email is actually on the paper, but you can read the abstract online. Great. So I'll have a link to the abstract and also your email there. So if the listener wants to check that out more deeply, they can do so through the show notes. And then for Fluence, there's some trainings coming up. I know that it's July 6th now. We'll be publishing this probably after some of the, because there's a couple of trainings that are just about to start, I think this week mm-hmm. and the next, or maybe the next week. So this may not be out just when those start, but you are doing trainings year round. So how can people connect with Fluence? How can people get involved in some of these trainings? Great. So visit fluencetraining.com, all one word, fluencetraining.com. And uh, you'll see a whole bunch of our courses, classes, workshops, and things there. Um, we have a lot of things starting in the fall. So we're, we're not starting anything new in August because we're taking a little break. Um, but we are gearing up for a very full fall schedule. We will have the experiential practice retreat that I spoke about in October. We have introductory workshops in psychedelic integration therapy, as well as for those interested in working with ketamine. We have reading and study groups. We have consultation groups. We will have webinar series. We will have a lot of just a lot of different unique events. And we're launching a research study that psychedelic integration therapists can sign up for. Uh, There's information about that on our website as well. And there will be two informational webinars in September for therapists who wish to join and contribute some data and help our field learn more about how people utilize and benefit from, if they benefit from, uh, psychedelic integration work. 
And just to be clear on getting involved in some of those trainings, with some exceptions, most of those trainings do not require any prerequisites or pre-credentials to then participate. Is that accurate? Most of them don't. A few of them are only for clinicians. So the consultation groups and the certificate programs, uh, you do need to be a licensed clinician. But the introductory weekend workshops, you do not need to be a licensed clinician for those. And uh, all of the reading and study groups, you do not need to be a licensed clinician. And for the most part, when we have a webinar or sort of a one-off event, then those are open to anybody who wants to attend. We're also expanding our credentialing for clinicians. So hopefully we'll be able to offer that for more professionals in a short while. Wonderful. So we'll have all of that in the show notes. So if you're listening and and didn't grab a pen to write it down, just head over to the show notes. It'll all be available for you there. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And you have such a comprehensive and measured approach to some of these questions. And I'm so used to conversations that are basically just like, well, psychedelics will heal the world. So let's just, you know, put it in the water. (laughs) And and, um, it's nice to have a more cautious and uh, a more sophisticated perspective and to be able to offer that to our listeners today. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I, I really appreciate the variety of voices you've, you've had on this show and some really awesome people. So thank you for, for including me. Wonderful. And just to be clear, when I'm saying that I have conversations about people who just want to put LSD in the water, I don't mean <laughs> my guests on this podcast who are, without an exception, pretty sophisticated psychedelic thinkers. So I just want not <laughs> just to be clear about that. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.